Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that uh, today we're going to be really enjoying this interview. It's uh, someone that has a really inspiring story, a serial founder. So I think we, without further ado, Cameron Shell, welcome to the show today. Hey, thank you so much, Alejandro. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. So how many companies have you built and exited by now? Uh, you know, I don't actually, <laughs> I haven't actually kept track, but it would it'd be, uh, it'd be probably, you know, in the range of, uh, maybe somewhere between, you know, eight and nine, uh, that, uh, and it depends what you call an exit too. So, you know, if, if, if you call them partial exits or, uh, exits whereby, you, you know, they've, they've gone public and we're part of the team and it's, and it's, uh, been bought two or three times before it's gone public, I would say a dozen at, at least. Um, but in, but in terms of just pure, pure, like we built it once and sold it to one buyer, then it'd be six, I believe, if, that, if I'm not mistaken. Got it. So, so I guess doing a little bit of a walk through memory lane. So, how how did you get the entrepreneurial bug? Um, well, actually, I've, I've just never known anything else. Uh, both my parents were entrepreneurs. Um, uh, they, you know, back in those days, they didn't call them entrepreneurs. They were small business owners. Uh, my dad was a rancher and he was also the local butcher. Uh, and, uh, my mom was the local florist in very, very small town, not, e not even a traffic light in the town I grew up in. And, um, <clears throat> but that, but that's what they did. And, uh, you know, they worked, they worked seven days a week. Uh, we, we went to church on Sundays, but they still worked, you know, you, the, the, both those, all three of those, those industries or those businesses, you had to work every day. And so I just don't know anything else. And so I feel very, very blessed and lucky to have been brought nice. up that way. So what was this small town? Where was, it was this? It was a, a little town called Fort McLeod. Uh, it's up in uh, southern Alberta, Canada. Um, and I think at its peak, it had about 3,000 people in it. Got it. And by the way, my wife is Canadian, so I love Canadian. Ah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I like her already. <laughs> so, so, Cameron, your first company, that was FutureLink. Is that right? Yeah, my, my the first company that I had, a, actually, it, it, the first company that, you know, tech company that I would have had a, a, a proper exit from, if you will, uh, was, was FutureLink. I had built a, um, an irrigation, uh, startup in my mid teens and also a one hour photo chain, uh, which I had sold, um, uh, by my early twenties. Um, but, but in terms of like a proper tech startup with, you know, that had a sizable exit and, and, and a meaningful, uh, you know, kind of footprint to it, it was, it was FutureLink. Yes. 
So tell us about this initiative. How did it come together and, and tell us more about it? Sure. Well, FutureLink was, um, uh, it, it was, it was, I, I would love to say it was purely my idea and it wasn't by any stretch. It was actually my brother-in-law who came up with uh, the notion of um, being able to, to run uh, apps uh, in server farms and, and have the app be accessed via the internet. This, this brand new thing called the internet, this is back in, you know, 94, 95, when we were starting to talk about it in 96, when we launched it. And, um, and, and so we were really without knowing it, obviously at the time we were, we were, you know, arguably the first version of, of what would have been called a cloud computing company. And we called it a computer utility company at that time. And, um, and kind of, we basically were trying to enhance both the upgrade experience for users when when there was a, a software upgrade, so that people wouldn't have to go into you know the computer land or you know the the uh, the computer store at that time and buy all these you know uh, three and a half inch discs and load them into a computer and flop them in and out and all the rest. We're like, well, why do you even have to do all that? Why why aren't you just accessing the software um, that sits on the server somewhere as well as as um, you know, mobile computing was was really starting to make its mark. And like, if I'm on the road, like you know, I like these. You know, why do I need to carry a laptop? Why don't we log in via what we were calling at that time a thin client? So we were working with a number of companies, everybody from you know Oracle and Sun and Microsoft uh, and IBM and Compaq and you know, because there was this computer utility thin client. Uh, kind of revolution that was coming. And we actually dubbed the industry the application service provider industry, just to completely date myself, um, which was, you know, kind of trying to build on the branding of, of internet uh, service providers. And so we called them actually, sorry, application service providers. Got it. And I saw that at the same time, right at the same time. And, you know, I, I, it's funny because I got a little bit dizzy because just doing it once, you know, it's, it's tough, but Doing multiple companies at the same time is is just unbelievable. So you were doing also in Jira and SAP Industry Consortium, is that right? Yeah. So so we launched the ASP Industry Consortium, and that was really a self serving uh, mechanism to try to get adoption in the industry, but also to try to bring some standards uh, to the space. And we had positioned FutureLink as a as you know one of the founding companies, and I was lucky enough to um, take on the vice chairman role there, and really be kind of became the promoter uh, of that. Uh, we also started a company called Engyro, uh, which went through a name change, and then eventually that company was sold off to Microsoft separately. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I think in true uh, serial founder fashion, um, I, I tend to work better if I've got a couple of things going on um, at the same time. And uh, obviously, I, you know, most everything I do, you, you know, it's not the only thing I do, but I'm very lucky to work with uh, very accomplished teams. And, uh, and they kind of let me lead some of the strategic direction. Um, and, and then they handle a bunch of the, you know, the coding and the product design. And I like to be involved on in the architect side of things. But once we get a layer deeper, I'm either out of time or out of skill. Got it. And in Jira, what was in Jira about? So in Jira was a billing payment system. Well, what it ended up pivoting to was a billing payment system, uh, in particular for uh, the .NET uh, world, <clears throat> and uh, it went through a couple of iterations to get to that point. Uh, but that's where it, that's where it ended up, and and it was it was a, a two management teams after us. We were still involved uh, strategically, but two management teams after our initial initiative uh, that eventually got that sold off. So, I mean, again, this we we were without knowing it, we were very lean. Um, uh, uh, centric. Uh, and of course it wasn't called lean then it was basically, uh, you know, it was, it was called survival back then. And it wasn't really a, an accepted practice in terms of, 
uh, how you built startups. The, 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 the kind of accepted practice of the day was, you know, raise a bunch of money, build a whole bunch of infrastructure and, and, you know, kind of hope the customers show up. And, um, we were never huge, huge capital raisers. Uh, we were builders first, which I think is often, um, you, you know, quite, quite, um, characteristic of founders. And so we, we would end up, you know, you know, getting a, a customer first and then kind of building the product around their requirement. And that's just how we've built things uh, always. And and as uh, Eric Reese and, and that whole kind of like lean startup movement really came in, it was really exciting and familiar to see. We didn't even recognize that that's what we were doing. And so we've become, uh, you know, pretty strong proponents of, of what that is and how that works. And, and really, it was interesting to see somebody from outside our organization kind of teaching us what we were already doing. So, what was the uh, found the the founding themes of of these initiatives? I'm sorry, the founding themes. Yes, no, the founding themes. So, did you have co-founders for these different initiatives? Yeah, in every single case, um, uh, I had I've had I've had co-founders. Uh, I would say in the early days, uh, much to my own character defect, you know, I would stand out in the front and say I was the founder, and the reality is I wasn't. Uh, yeah. I wasn't the only founder. I think I was a really uh, important part at times uh, to make a number of these organizations work. And not everything has worked by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah. there has always been not just like two co-founders, but um, uh, but really a co-founding team uh, when we really get honest um, about that. And um, <clears throat> and and they tend to be, the, the co-founders I, I tend to gravitate towards uh, tend to be either, uh, you know, technical um, or operational. So uh, the co-founders that that I I get to uh, you know uh, mix with, if you will, tend to be uh, more technical, uh, tend to be uh, more marketing and a bit more operational. Though I really I really do enjoy the operational uh, tactics of things. Got it. So obviously the um, the time frame was the same one for like FutureLink, Gyro, and ASAP Industry Consortium. So what was the outcome for for these initiatives? Well, so um, uh, in Gyro, uh, through a couple of iterations, ended up getting sold off to uh, Microsoft. I don't recall the amount. It wasn't a huge exit. I think it was probably an $18 million uh, uh, total sale. Um, we weren't large shareholders at that time. FutureLink was, a, was very successful and quite fortunate for us. Uh, it ended up having about a three and a half, maybe about a $3.2 billion market cap. And, and this is, you know, this is back when a billion dollars was, you know, a, like not what a billion dollars is today. <laughs> you know, it seems like there's a lot of companies with the billion dollar mar market valuations, <laughs> excuse me, not, not to take anything away from any of them, but it was, it was a really big deal for us. And so, so we were a, a company that had, you know, fortune, uh, 500 customers in terms of, the software that we had onboarded into the uh, into the data centers that we had built, and we were serving those softwares up to their customers. So, uh, you know, our customers were people like Microsoft and Great Plains uh, and Citrix. Great Plains is a is now the Dynamics um, accounting software system with inside inside of Microsoft, and uh, and uh, you know, Citrix was a customer, and then and uh, and so companies like. Uh, you know, Compaq and and um, HP and and Microsoft and 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 some great funds out of New York. They all became shareholders, and all of this was happening. And we were driving great revenues. And then there was this other thing happening that we were, you know, relatively kind of almost ignorant to, which was called the dot com, and um, <clears throat> and and we caught a hold of it, and we just ended up happening to be a startup that had some fundamentals behind it, and um, and and were the beneficiaries of of, of a great market. Um, it, it was as much luck as it was just 
I don't know what we'd be doing anything different anyway. I mean, it's what it's, it, we were building something that we really were passionate about. So then, so then basically what, what, what happened with future link? Well, so what happened with future link is, um, uh, I had hired a, uh, a chairman at the insistence of, um, of the financers, uh, and, and he was a very experienced chairman. He came out of the telco industry and, uh, and he came in and, and, uh, unbeknownst to me, um, when he took on the chairman role, he actually started acting and like a chairman, like a proper chairman. And I, and I was quite insulted by that. I, w- I was, you know, he obviously didn't understand who I was or how important I was uh, as uh, as a 20 some year old founder and CEO of this company. Uh, so you can imagine uh, what ensued. And, and what ensued was me getting fired for being an arrogant little shit. And, wow. um, and it was, it was, it was naughty. It was absolutely one of the best things that could have happened to me, but I was yeah. still too stubborn to recognize what a great lesson and opportunity it was. And, you know, I took my arrogance and channeled it completely inappropriately, you know, sued the company and started a competing company and did, did all the just absolutely junior mistakes that, that one, um, you know, would expect from a complete asshole. Uh, which, which is what I was at the time. And now the, 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 the other thing that was not a benefit though, I thought it was great at the time was because I was fired. Yeah. You know, a bunch of my stock vested, a bunch of my, uh, or a bunch of my stock didn't vest, but some of it did. And, um, and, and I was liquid, right. And I was liquid before the crash. <clears throat> so, so I was able to, to garner a little cash, not as much as one would think, but I was able to, to, to get a decent little, uh, nest egg out of it, which gave me some firepower to start a bunch more companies and, and, you know, cr- create more problems for myself ultimately. But, um, but if it wasn't for that, I'm sure I would have never sold a share and rode the thing right into the ground. So ultimately the, the, the company did fail in the dot-com boom. Uh, um, though I can't take credit for that. Uh, I'm not saying it would have succeeded if I had stayed at the helm, but, um, uh, but it, it was a high flying dot-com. Now, I, I, all that being said, I do want to point out that th- this was a company that had, you know, uh, approximately, if I'm not mistaken at its height, about $80 million in revenue. So again, back then it was a sizable number. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and everybody was focused on be- building a real business. It, it wasn't a dot-com high flying or <clears throat> the attitude inside was not a high flying dot-com business. Got it. Got it. So, so, so after the world trade center events happen, your uh, psychological health took a little bit of, uh, of a downturn. So could you tell us a little bit about this experience? Yeah, sure. So, so listen, I went on and, 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 and kept building a bunch more companies. Some, some were, were moderately successful. Some were to complete disasters. And, um, but in 2001, uh, I was at the, at the base of the world trade center on nine 11. And, uh, and l- listen, my life was whether I knew it or not at the time, it was headed for a major catastrophe be- be- because I was just, you know, I was just running completely out of control and, and, uh, and just, uh, totally self-centered. Um, and, but by the end of, uh, by the end of the day on nine 11, I, you know, I was, you know, in complete disarray, wondering why I was, you know, alive and other people weren't, and And it was probably the, f- the first chunk of my self-centeredness being, um, you know, at least somewhat corrected. Um, and I realized that I wasn't in control of things. So, um, you know, so all this great value and brilliance that I, that I thought I was creating, which was absolutely not the case, you know, I, you know, I, 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 for the first time, I really started to question it. Um, uh, within a very short time, I was drinking heavily. And within a very short time, uh, I was using, um, uh, you know, abusing drugs, uh, and, um, Within, you know, about two years, I was completely bankrupt and desolate. Within three years, I was living on the street. And uh, <clears throat> and I spent the next uh, 
you know, kind of seven years after that, uh, working to get clean and, um, and, and spent a lot of time in the street and rehabs and such to, to, to get, uh, to get my life back on track, which, you know, by the grace of God and a lot of great people, you know, I've, I've now been clean for over 10 years. I'm so happy to hear that. You know, it's, yeah, a, it's amazing that, that you're sharing this camera because founders, you know, and, and people don't talk about it a lot, but there is, it's a mental, it's a mental journey and it's a, it's challenging. You know, there is, um, uh, most founders deal with depression, you know, at, at some point, you know, earlier or, or later in the, in the journey, but, but it's just, it's just there. So, you know, obviously in, in this case for you, I guess, I guess you had to go through the journey that, that you had to go through. Right. And, uh, and what, what really was, would you say for you, the, the aha moment where you said it's time to reinvent myself? Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I wish, I wish that I could tell you that moment, that moment happened two dozen times for me where, where I said, this is it. I'm done. I'm going to, I'm going to get better. I'm going to fix it. And I even two dozen times as a joke, I'd, I'd wake up every morning or, or be awake for three days straight. And, I'd, and, and every 10 minutes I'd be like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. And then, you know, an hour later I'm off, you know, running again, just doing whatever I could to, to, uh, to get, to, to get my fix. But, um, there, there were, there, there, you know, so, so I would love to say it was willpower and I decided I was going to do it. And there was this, you know, great burning bush or something. And, and it wasn't what, what happened was a lucky situation. Um, it didn't seem lucky at the time <clears throat> where, uh, I was in a lot of danger and, uh, I was, I was being pursued by a gang, uh, it, you know, because they were it just, I lived on the street and I was getting beat up by them. And, uh, long story short, I, I had to kind of like get through a few, through a few days, um, without my, uh, DOC and my drug of choice, uh, I ended up getting through 10 days uh, without it. And, and, and while getting away from this gang and, um, uh, and I, I just didn't really have a choice. I hit rock bottom. That's the bottom line. I didn't have a choice to use again, uh, at that time be because I guess I decided I, I did want to live, which I didn't know that I wanted to live, but I did want to live. And, and, um, and at the end of 10 days clean, something just started to, to click. I had had 10 days clean before, but not having gone through what I had gone through in the previous 10 days. And, and I knew that, that if I ever touched anything again, um, that I wouldn't come back and I'd be, and I'd be done. And, and I could just see so many people that were really sincerely and authentically trying to help me. And I was just, and, uh, I was just disrespecting them at every moment. And, 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 and I, and that, that was the last time. And I'm not saying that wasn't the first time there were certainly many times before that, but that was the last time that, and, and I was like, okay. And, and then, you know, there were many tempting times over the weeks and the months and the years ensuing where I, where, where if it wasn't just for some pure luck, I would have um, used again, or I would have fallen again. Founders are, are like incredibly in, can be incredibly impulsive, compulsive, and generally always determined people. So when, you know, when, when there's something that has worked before to solve a problem, like using a drug or something, it's tough to get away from that. And it's, uh, so, so, you know, I, I see a lot of founders, uh, I, I get to, you know, coach and mentor, uh, some of them, and, and I see the intensity that they approach things with. You, you, you generally have to be on some level incredibly intense to be able to, to do something like this or to take the risks 
or be willing to subject yourself to the things that you go through. And so, you know, it puts you in a lot of risky situations, but it also you're, you're, you're generally, you know, kind of predetermined to be a certain type of individual that, that could be suspect, uh, you know, or, or subject to, to falling into these traps. So, um, I guess my point is there was no burning bush and, and it was a lot of luck and a lot of great people that helped me get through that. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Because I mean, for how, for how many years you mentioned it was say for how many years were you on the streets? Yeah. So, so there was a consistent four years that I was on and off like in and out. And, um, uh, you know, I think that like my total, my, actually my, my total uh, run was about a decade, just a little bit over a decade, about 12 years, uh, from, from when I really slipped deeply until I, uh, you know, I finally got myself cleaned up. I didn't get myself cleaned up, but I was finally able to get cleaned up and, um, which, which is, which in, which is quite a short time frame for somebody that goes really deep and lives on the street. Cause most people don't come back from, yeah. from the street. And, uh, so, uh, but there, but there was four years in there where I was, um, just completely gone. Just I mean, un- it's, it's, unfindable. I gotta tell you, Cameron, I mean, it's, it's incredible the, where you are today compared to where you were, because when you go from building a business that is valued at over a billion, like you were saying, to literally being on the streets, I, I, I would have to assume, you know, and you can confirm this or not, but you probably, when you were in, at that point, you probably had given up on yourself. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, you, you know, living it 100%, Alejandro, I, uh, I had not only just given up on myself, but I, but I had actually believed that everybody, the entire world, my family, uh, everybody was better off with me. Like you justify it this way, right? That was better off with me being on the street because I was so worthless. And, um, and, uh, you know, homelessness, homelessness itself is, is, it is its own form of drug and it's its own form of a mental illness that draws you into it where you don't want to leave. You don't want to leave. And, and in fact, I would say today, you know, when I'm, when I'm hungry or lonely or tired or angry, or, you know, just, you know, haven't been looking after myself, you know, the, the, the odd, crazy thought of being homeless would slip into my head more and be more attractive than the odd, crazy thought of using drugs. It, it, it's a, it's a, it's a very odd mindset that, that slips, that slips into that, but, but worthlessness is, is at the forefront of it. Got it. So I guess, uh, you know, probably you got a, a ton of, um, lessons learned from, from this experience. And I'm sure that there is a, a lot of founders that are probably listening now and, and that are dealing with, with top uh, situations, you know, with their mental challenges of, of their own, perhaps depression, what kind of advice would you give them? The, the, I mean, there are so many great lessons that I've been, um, that I've been given, but the, the one that, that I hang on to the most every day now is that, uh, that is that I just stay very, very present. So I only do the next thing in front of me. And, um, it's almost counterintuitive because it's, it's, you know, we're, we're taught to be visionaries. We're taught to be, what's the next big thing we're taught to be, you know, you have to be, you have to see around corners and anticipate the next move. And, you know, if you're not a great chess player, you're not a great CEO. And if you're not all those things, but you know, the reality is if you just don't get done the next most important thing, none of it matters. And in 90% of, of, uh, in my opinion, founders today that don't succeed, um, generally do it not because they they haven't got a great idea. There's amazing great ideas out there. You know, I sit in, in, uh, angel forums and I, and I, you, you know, listen to pitches and, and the ideas and the thinking is incredible, but 90, 99% of the time, the reason that you, whether it's recognized or not, the reason that people don't invest in those founders 
is because they don't believe that they can execute the next step. It's, it's really all just about what is the next most important thing to do. So when I get up in the morning, believe me, my mind is already racing. And if the first thing I don't do is meditate and get to a spot where it's like, I don't need to figure out even like my calendar is booked for weeks in advance. That's fine. But I don't need to worry about this afternoon. I just, I need to worry about the next 15 minutes, getting to my workout, getting back on time, getting my kids breakfast ready. Like that, if I don't take that level of pragmatic approach as a founder, <clears throat> I, you know, I'm also not going to run my business well. And so those are the things that I've seen investors really focus on, whether they recognize it or not. And I've also found that the most successful <clears throat> founders have a high level of anxiety. And this is one of the greatest ways for them to, to, to alleviate that anxiety is to know that everything will be okay if you just get the next thing done. Got it. And, and for you, I mean... You you go all the way to like 42 years old, and then at 42, you know things are starting to turn around. You you you're in a loving relationship, and obviously now you you are a father. Uh, but I guess the um you were diagnosed as well with lymphoma cancer. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's um you know um <clears throat> excuse me yeah uh, it's just another one of those great lessons where you realize you're not in control. So, so whether I, I, you know, I didn't recognize it, but you know, now I had some clean time. I had somebody that loved me. I had a family that was growing and, um, and I thought, Hey, I'd done everything right. I, I, I deserve to be in this spot that I was in because I've done all the hard work, which, uh, again, entitlement, a character defect of mine, um, you know, just slapped me right in the face and said, you're not in control. And, and I was diagnosed with lymphoma cancer. And, uh, and part of my first reaction was like, what the hell? I've done everything I was supposed to do. I've done everything right. I've done like, why would this happen? And so it, it really, again, it was a blessing because it, it really took, um, you know, the, the need for me to let go of ego and, uh, and start to understand, Hey, where's my self centered in this and this and, and, uh, you know, understanding this isn't all about me and, you know, I'm not a victim here. And what are the most important things that I need to take care of in terms of my family and the people I was working with and, and the investors that had put projects, uh, money into projects that I was building. And here I was diagnosed with lymphoma cancer. And when I got focused on those things rather than, Oh my gosh, what about me? Or why, why am I not getting what I quote unquote deserve? You know, things turned around. And even if, you know, I was very, very lucky that physically and, and health wise, you know, I, I was able to uh, get on the other side of it and I've been, <clears throat> you know, clean of that now for, uh, eight years or, or, you know, free of, of uh, lymphoma cancer for eight years. And, um, but it, I promise you if, if I would, I totally believe that if I would have stayed a, in a state of victimhood or entitlement, I, I don't, I don't know that I would have beat it. Um, or, you know, and I didn't beat it. It just, it was, a, it was, it was, a, it was a grace that, that I'm here, but, but, uh, but it sure changed that whole experience. And even if I hadn't, you know, because it, uh, I, I'm, I was able to get to a spot of not having that entitlement. Even if I hadn't been able to beat it, I, I believe that both my family and my coworkers and, and our investors would have been fine because, because of the steps we would have taken um, to, to help ensure that, um, that, that everything was fine. And, and again, that was just, it was just about the next thing. We weren't worried about 20 years down the road. We we're just worrying about, okay, what's the next most important thing to get done. And I'm so happy to, to hear that camera. So, so I guess the, um, so obviously you turn things around and at what point are you, okay, you know, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to launch another company. 
Well, it, it, again, I didn't really know much else. So <clears throat> I had already launched a couple of companies <laughs> and, uh, and the first one was, uh, was a company called Earthcast and Earthcast. Uh, our idea was to be build a competitor to Google earth by putting, uh, live video cameras, uh, in space. And in fact, we were going to put them on the international space station. Um, so we were successful in doing this. Uh, we raised very small amount of capital to start. We started proving up the idea. We got a couple of customers on board that liked the idea and they funded some of the, the product development. And, uh, and then eventually we were able to raise bigger and bigger capital and bring on a more and more senior management team. Uh, today, uh, those cameras are on the international space station and they provide uh, live video feeds of earth. The primary customers are B2G, not B2C as we had originally contemplated. And, um, and to, to date, at least to my knowledge, uh, they are still the only live video from space. All other video in space is all based on um, still pictures being taken. I mean, very fast still pictures, but nonetheless, it's it's not video um, still. So uh, very unique data set on the International Space Station, which had a very unique orbit. Um, and so the data that it was producing became, uh, you, you know, was very valuable. And so that was the first one. And, and then since then, I, you know, I think we've got 22 companies in our portfolio uh, to date. And we'll we'll go through through some of them, but you guys did an IPO of Earthcast. Uh, yeah, the Earthcast went public, correct? Yeah. Earthcast went public, and and how much how much capital was raised in total for the business? Uh, the, the total capital was two hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, excuse me, two hundred and eighty million dollars at the point that uh, that we were kind of no longer part of the active management of the okay. business, and they've raised capital since. But even $280 million for a space company is like, it's, it's a ridiculously small amount of money. Um, and, uh, but we, like we were building the cameras for literally $5 million a piece. They were, you know, you know, literally Canon SLR chips that were, uh, that were the sensors being used. Uh, now the housings were very, very expensive, um, you know, to protect that equipment, but, um, it was all part of this kind of like new initiative of called small space at the time. Uh, which was all about being able to use commercially available products up uh, in the space industry. And, um, you know, we, we were also beneficiaries of, of, of space being pretty hot at the time with the X prize um, going forward and such. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we just grabbed onto what we could and, and built what we, what we did. Got it. And this was the first, would you say this was the first portfolio company of business instincts group? Correct. Correct. Okay. Because what is, what is, Business Instincts Group. Yeah, so Business Instincts Group is is uh, really a venture creation lab. <clears throat> so uh, we come up with ideas internally, uh, and or we uh, we bring ideas in house uh, and incubate them uh, that are generally very very early stage uh, either ideas or businesses that we feel that that have a significant opportunity to scale. And uh, what we have is a a, a um, proprietary process called the, the Rip Kit, which is responsibilities and perspective, which is really our system by which um, uh, companies uh, can build. Uh, startups from idea right through to commercialization. Um, the primary idea behind it is that uh, rather than setting KPIs or key performance indicators, what it's designed to do is, is set responsibilities and perspective or RIPs, uh, which it basically involve the entire team setting the most important objectives on a monthly, quarterly, and yearly basis. And then checking in on those objectives on a weekly basis. There's a software system that uh, that helps drive the whole process. It's one level above project management. So, uh, but what it does uh, do is it really ensures that everybody is on the same strategic page, uh, and and as such, it allows them 
or gives empowers them to make decisions because everybody knows they're on the same page. The the other great advantage of of the the system and the software is it provides full transparency and a dashboard to the investors. So um, you know, as we go out and we raise capital for our projects, or we have our senior management teams raising capital for our projects, one of the things that they can show. Uh, to investors is everything that's happening on a weekly basis. So they can they can see exactly, you know, what the strategic initiatives are, who's in charge of them, are they behind, on track, ahead, and by what percentage, what are the key items to get them back on percentage track. And um, uh, and and not, not all investors, you know, uh, dive into it. Uh, about 10 to 15% of investors look closely at it, but all investors want that drastically. Um, also, uh, it really provides a great recruiting tool for our projects. Um, right away, if, if we have senior teams that are uncomfortable with that level of transparency, um, we know that they're, they're not likely a right fit, at least for us anyway. So, so, you know, and again, like we ended up because we scale across multiple projects, we ended up building this because we wanted to have great internal communication and it's become a, it's become a really solid external communicator as well. Uh, but most importantly, what we find is that Everybody knows the the who, what, when, where, and why of a project at pretty much any given time. Got it. So, so part of part of the um, business instincts group. I mean, you guys have this thing called the big thinking process. What is this? Yeah. So, what big thinking is 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 really uh, it, it's anchored in in the first question we call it, which is called what if. So, <clears throat> imagine if you could if if Google Earth was live. Like just what if it was like we, we know all the reasons that, that it can't be and it's impossible and being facetious here, but but if it could, you know what it what would what would it look like if you could, and and then we kind of go through that question and we, and we end up coming up with a really cool product right and this is how we started Earthcast <clears throat> and we come up with a really cool product of what it would be like to have a Google Earth Live rather than you know three year old satellite data, and then we thought well I, we know it's impossible to build this but what if we could build it. What, what, would, what would that look like? And, and, and after you go through, you know, kind of like seven to 15 what ifs on a project, you end up getting it boiled down to an actual potential or possibility to build a project that was thought impossible literally five or six hours previous to that. And that's our big thinking process. So, so we love big ideas and we love all that kind of stuff, but we really like to anchor it in in a pragmatic approach to like okay well what if you could do that and what it would look like and so often um, when I'm lucky enough to to be able to speak in front of a group and somebody says well I can't do that and and uh, and and so I'll I'll use a line on them but what if you could do that but I can't I know okay but just pretend pretend you could what what would you do next and and inevitably the great thing about about us uh, as humans is we can always come up with an answer as obscure or as obtuse or as crazy or whatever it is. And if you ask yourself, well, what if enough times you'll you'll come up with an answer that it can actually work uh, for you or for that situation, or at the very least garner insights that, you know, I find give you a perspective whereby you're not necessarily locked into possibility or which often is locked into the thoughts of being a victim, right? As opposed to, okay, well, what's the opportunity? And, And we know we can't work, but what if it could work? So that's that's the big thing. That's the big thinking in our in our view. Got it. Got it. And as part of the portfolio that you guys have, another 
Another recent success has been Slice. And, and what can you tell us about Slice? Well, yeah, so here, here's a double-edged sword for us. So, so Slice was, um, <clears throat> our, our whole idea was that we wanted to build a visual search engine. So there's been a lot of, ta- obviously, you know, search is, is, uh, is, in, is a, a massive industry and, and a cornerstone on so many um, commercial aspects of, of what happens on the internet and, and e-commerce in general. And there was a lot of focus being put on, on visual search. So we see things like, you know, Siri and Alexa and, and so on and so forth. And, um, and, and we thought, geez, you know, like this, like visual, like, I'm sorry, on, on audio search, like Siri and Alexa. And so, uh, we were like, let's just be a bit counterintuitive here and go down the path of a visual search. And we had done a, quite a bit of stuff in visual search before, um, uh, not specifically, uh, for what slice was going to, uh, try to accomplish. Um, but in particular, we'd done some machine vision work, uh, actually, you know, way back, um, in the nineties. And then, um, and then at earthcast, we had, we had done, we had recognized the power of, of some visual recognition when identifying objects on on Earth uh, using um, cameras from the space station. So the the general idea was, well, why don't you just take a, and this isn't a novel idea, there's <laughs> lots of people about it. What if, why can't you just take a picture of something? Let's say it's an office chair and you're in the Office Depot or Staples app and you take a picture of that and boom, it finds it in their inventory. You can buy it instantly. So, so, so like no click at buying, right. Rather than one click purchasing, which Amazon, you know, built an empire on, what if you could do it on no click buying? And so we envisioned that, that, you know, up in the little search bar, there would be, you know, a keyboard, there'd be a microphone and there'd be a camera. And, and that's, and that's what we wanted to create. So we, uh, we raised a total of $35,000 over four years to build this technology out, which again is, is as we learned afterwards, was an, a ridiculously small amount of money to be able to do what we were doing compared to what other people were spending. And, um, and we successfully built out a product. So today, um, that product owns close to, if not 100% of the visual search market with retail apps. So if you go to Home Depot and, um, and you will see up in, in the Home Depot app, you'll see a uh, a keyboard, you'll see a microphone, and you'll see a a, um, uh, a camera. And if you uh, put your thumb on that camera, the camera on the app will open up, and you can take a picture of anything in your home, and it will find it in the Home Depot inventory, and you can buy it one click, and it will be shipped. It's it's an incredible, incredible product. Um, uh, uh, J C Penney's, Macy's, a number of the other large retailers uh, were uh, and and our users. Um, of it today and it's got great applications so we're super super proud uh of that um we ended up not doing that great on the deal uh we ended up selling we we had to get another very large round of funding uh in place and we had a very large deal pending with a fortune 50 tech provider out there um you know kind of one of the biggest two or three uh tech companies in the world and they had a product that um, they were going to implement it in that product had had a disastrous uh, problem had nothing to do with us leading into it. And, and we weren't able to make it into that iteration of, of that product. And this was a key feature of, of that particular piece of hardware, uh, that was coming out. And so our funding, uh, fell through and we just kind of fell into the gap. So we ended up selling the company to a, uh, a private equity firm. Um, uh, and, you know, basically we were able to pay off all our bills and, and keep about 7% of the business. So, um, you know, we've still got tremendous upside and we're big fans of it, but, uh, economically that particular one, even though it was productized, a great success for us, wasn't really a great success for our investors. That said, we still own that, that 7% and we still have a holding company and we are rolling some other technologies into it right now, uh, that we, uh, that we have high hopes for.
Got it. And you've done a, a couple of IPOs. So, I mean, I think this company also did an IPO there in Canada. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. <clears throat> and what, it what was, it, Go ahead. And it, it's, it's now completely based in the U.S. It was, it was sold to a Washington-based PE group. Yeah, because I see a lot of companies that are going now to Canada to, to do <laughs> IPOs. So what, what's kind of like the incentive or, or what's the experience of doing an IPO in Canada? Because you go fairly early in the, in the financing cycle. Yeah, so so there's two there's two types of things that that uh, I would say in current times kind of define that Canadian uh, or go public market. One is uh, the Canadian market really revolves more around what's called public venture capital. So, um, so I live in Los Angeles, and that's where our team is based. Primarily, we have you know multiple offices, but um, and uh, uh, but and in, and in the U.S., it's you, you know you go private, you raise you you raise a couple of rounds of you know angel, and then an A, and then a, and 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 there, but but there's enough um, sizable capital around where you can continue to grow things uh, privately, and and either look for an exit or or, an op, or operation to become profitable as soon as possible. Obviously, um, in Canada, there's not as big a capital market in terms of the private. Um, uh, equity. So what ends up happening up there is is public venture capital. So so they have a um, uh, a couple of exchanges up there and an investor kind of sentiment, if you will, that will uh, that actually likes companies to be public early, offer some form of liquidity, but also have a huge level of transparency, much much more than what typically happens in private companies in the U.S., um, which puts heavy burden on the management team and, and requires a different level of experience. But it does give you access to you know kind of you know, three and four and five million dollar, um, or or even million dollar financings, on a, on a relatively um, quick basis. If you can demonstrate that there's you know the possibility to, uh, you know, to succeed, it, it can also be very brutal though. Like if you're not going to succeed, they're public company investors and they dump your stock and you're done. So it it has both uh, upside and downside. The other defining factor up there that's really come uh, become into play the last you know five to seven years is the regulatory environment. So it's a heavily regulated, regulated, regulated market. Um, uh, but things like uh, blockchain uh, and things like cannabis have a different kind of legal framework. So cannabis in Canada uh, is legal. And um, that was a big initiative by the government. It was constitutionally, uh, it became a constitutional issue uh, up there, actually. And so you see large cannabis companies going public uh, in the Canadian market because they have access to banking and and public markets and and stuff. And it's, it's really, you know, they're kind of the leading edge of some of those regulatory environments as opposed to in the States, which for many good reasons might be a little bit slower in, in terms of adopting um, those reasons. So uh, Canada's kind of carved a little niche out for itself uh, to be able to do public um, venture capital, but also to be able to, um, you know, very prudently, but uh, while at the same time, you know, be be a leading edge on some of these uh, markets that are, that are kind of still maturing or evolving. So you were, you were talking about blockchain. I mean, I was I was blown away when I saw the Kodak crypto thing, you know, like when, when yeah. they came out with their coin and, and you were one of the creators. So, so how, how did this happen? I mean, I, I was, I was, um, I was really surprised. Yeah. So, well, f- first and foremost, we really had to demonstrate uh, to this New York stock exchange listed company that uh, we were, that we were, you know, we're blockchain first. 
And we, we had a value proposition that was a real world offering um, and had a business behind it. <clears throat> the, the coin itself, the Kodak coin itself, was really just a payment or settlement mechanism for a great blockchain business um, behind it. <clears throat> so it moved quite quickly uh, for us. We were very fortunate. But the technology that we had built in conjunction with um, uh, partners that we had brought in-house at, uh, at Business Instincts Group and then consequently ICOX, which is a kind of like a separate venture lab that's public, as a matter of fact, that that you know incubates these um, uh, these ideas for large large companies. Um, the the you know we really had to demonstrate that we had a product first, and the and the product there is IP rights management. So there's there's probably relatively few, if if many any, um, uh, other blockchain applications that will be more affected uh, by blockchain than. IP rights. <clears throat> and so um, basically, if you take an image and you want to be able to ensure that it has copyright and it can be enforced on a scalable way, um, you know, blockchain in many respects is highly ideal for it. However, blockchain doesn't solve the payment piece of it. So we ended up building a currency, we call it a, uh, a corporate currency that would allow for instant settlement. So photographers can instantly get paid for their licensing and track that licensing around the world. So again, it's, it's, um, a corporate currency, or what most people would know, be known as a cryptocurrency, because it's a programmable piece of code, a programmable piece of currency, it can offer so many other benefits other than just the settlement of payment. It offers tracking, it offers reward, it offers loyalty, it offers uh, license settlement, it offers, you know, it, it, all of these types of things. So, um, you know, our platform is integrated with the U.S. banking system, and we have our money transmitter licenses. You know, we, we, we never once anticipated or wanted to work in an environment that wasn't mainstream. So we weren't trying to not be a security. We weren't trying to work outside those parameters. And, and I think uh, Kodak, in my opinion, wisely, of course, I'm biased, wisely saw an opportunity and recognized that, you know, digital really destroyed Kodak. But if they could, if they could be the cornerstone of managing digital rights... I mean, they they could. Re I mean, they were still a one point six billion dollar company or something. So I mean, they're they're nothing to sneeze at. But but that, that that digital rights management could really return Kodak. Yeah, I'm sure there's many other things that it'll take too. But it could really return Kodak to to its to to its former self as a tech giant, and um, or or certainly a player in in IP rights and media and the media space. So that was their bet. We were lucky enough they made it with us, and uh, and today. We, we, we faced a lot of criticism around the product, a lot of, um, uh, um, you know, gesturing and, and ridicule. Uh, but today, uh, you know, last quarter, we announced that it did $400,000 in revenue. It has over a million dollars of cases um, that are being worked on for this quarter. Uh, and it will continue to grow. I mean, it's got a, a strong team and a very strong value proposition and a technology that's stronger than the incumbents in the space. So how do you, how do you see the... Um... <laughs> The crypto and the blockchain space. Like, what what do you think is going to be the future for it? Well, I th I think the the I, I'm I'm not one that is uh, in the in the near term, and I'll call the near term the next ten years. Um, going to suggest that the the world's going to be set decentralized. Uh, I just don't think the world, uh, from a, a geopolitical and a um, an emotional standpoint, is ready to be decentralized. I'm not saying that's not part of the long term thing that might happen, um, but it but it's not something that's going to happen in in the near term. And I think the most of the crypto adoption that you're going to see is going to happen in large brands and or established organizations. So most recently, we saw J.P. Morgan announce the J.P.M. coin, and really the J.P.M. coin is is really a payment rail for moving money on a blockchain. 
internally for for JP Morgan because it because they can do it at effectively a very low or no cost um, compared to having to use traditional banking rails and they and and the coin is really a moniker or a token that that uh, acts as a tracking agent that tracking agent you know can be programmed to do a whole bunch of other things so so effectively as a currency it has it it has not just cost reduction benefits but it has a whole bunch of other um, you know, uh, tracking in our IRR benefits as well. Um, we we have seen uh, uh, leaks out of uh, Facebook that sometime in in 2019 they're going to be launching the Facebook coin, which will really be the same thing—a a money transfer coin uh, to be used on WhatsApp. And um, you know, whether they got that idea from Telegram or or Telegraph, excuse me, um, or such as you know, who knows. But it's an incredible use case and an unbelievably powerful position for Facebook to be in. Um, th- th- that's where I see most of this, like supply chain metrics, uh, adopting blockchain or corporate currencies to manage and pay supply chains and track products. Um, we've got some terrific projects coming forward in 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 um, sports betting. Uh, we just built a a currency for the gun industry, which combines all your background checks and your KYC, AML, OFAC, SDN, anti money laundering, anti terrorism, all in one fell swoop. So so without even legislation. You know that corporate currency was able to create a safer gun transaction than ever before. I mean, those are the really impassioned things that we love to be a part of, and I think th- those are th- that's where I see the biggest and the most immediate future um, for crypto. Um, and, and but but certainly over the next, you, you know, just like the internet, the the, the blockchain and crypto is going to take, you know, two to three to four times longer than anybody anticipated. But it's probably going to be a thousand times bigger than anybody anticipated, just like the internet was. Um, but we're seeing very quick and immediate adoption now with large companies like JPM and and um, um, <clears throat> Facebook, uh, Kodak, uh, Gunbroker, and uh, and and some other companies that we're about to announce. Got it. So so let me ask you this, uh, Cameron, because this is something that I always ask uh, guests that that come on to the to the show. If you could go back to the past and give yourself advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? um the uh there's two things well i'll I'll tell you what i tell my son i get up every morning and meditate and uh and then just focus on them them, uh, like think big but act small act small in terms of what you need to do next and act small in terms of where your ego needs to be so that's really four things i just told you there but those four things you do those and everything i believe will work out right um uh don't get too far in front of myself don't don't think like think big, but just learn how to act small. And uh, and I guess I guess that's the advice: think big, act small. And and some of those small acts are 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 just doing what's next and and having a little meditation sometime throughout the day. I love it. I love it. So, what is the best camera and the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, well, like they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, they can find me on Twitter at uh, Cameron Chell. Um, and, uh, and I'm pretty active on, on those. And I try to stay in touch with everybody as much as possible. They can also check out, um, businessinstincts.com. So businessinstincts.com, uh, or if they want to see our crypto, uh, and corporate currency work, they can check out icoxinnovations.com. Fantastic. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for being on the show today. I can't even thank you enough. I so appreciate uh, your podcast and congratulations on on your your relatively recent exit and uh, and also what you're creating here. It's uh, it's incredible what you're doing for the space. Thank you, Cameron. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.